I grew up on the land, on a small farm in northeast Iowa. I felt that families on the lands needed help from scientists, and I dedicated my life to science. The first and foremost problem in this crowded and overcrowded world is one of two. And the magnitude of the problem that confronts us is fantastic and frightening. In many parts of the world, yields are very low. We cannot continue to ignore this problem of food. Food distribution is of prime importance to solving human problems. How do we draw attention to its importance? It has to come from within. And I am not one to sit idly by and see man increasing his numbers faster than food production. I am not one to sit idly by. If I have anything to contribute to this world, I'm going to play that card and play it hard. When I know that our scientific facts are right, I'm going to play that card and play it hard. We must continue to improve our technology if we are to keep pace with this growing demand for food if we are to have a stable world. The good farmer is the person who can put all the pieces together. It starts with production. Then you have to have the variety. Proper time of preparation of the land for planting. It must be executed by people who have the motivation. Plants talk to you. They tell you whether they're healthy, whether they're happy, and the way they grow and develop is an outward manifestation of this. The plants will talk in a quite intelligent voice. Quite intelligent voice. You have to live with them. You have to feel their pulse. This is very critical. This is very critical. Look what happened to the dinosaur. When he lost his ability to change, he became obsolete. Is this the destiny of the human species? And I am not one to sit idly by and see man increasing his numbers faster than food production. I am not one to sit idly by. If I have anything to contribute to this world, I'm going to play that card and play it hard. When I know that our scientific facts are right, I'm going to play that card and play it hard. It is my hope that all who are born into this world we can provide with the basic necessities for a decent, humane life. And this seems to be urgent to me, to try to help in some small, modest sort of way. We might be surprised how much we could improve the environment. Welcome back to Mindwave. Big, big thank you to John D. Boswell, a.k.a. Melody Sheep, of the famed Symphony of Science YouTube series, uh, for giving us permission to use his track, Play It Hard, uh, in our intro there. He made that in collaboration with the International Center for Maize and Wheat Improvement and Biology Fortified. And this was to... Uh, it's a special tribute to... Dr. Norman Borlaug. Uh, this was released on what would have been his 100th birthday. It's a fantastic track, and I absolutely love everything this guy does. Uh, John is a fantastic uh, composer, and his videos are brilliant. Uh, please check him out. I'm going to put links 
to the Symphony of Science series in the show notes. If you aren't familiar, please go give them a listen. Uh, this series was integral in kind of fueling my passion for science and wanting to learn more and getting out there. So in a, in a way, he's responsible for inspiring this show a little bit too. <laughs> uh, we are continuing our Green Revolution series. This is part two. And we had a little bit of technical difficulties, uh, connection issues with a new platform that we're trying out. Some of you may have noticed from uh, the interview with Kevin Fulta that uh, we're trying out a new platform. The audio quality is uh, pretty good. Uh, Connection issues has happened a couple times. So, uh, regrettably, this happened a few times during my conversation here. And uh, I did my best to piece to piece everything together and, and uh, make it flow naturally. But from the bits that I had to cut, it, it sounds artificially rushed, uh, which is unfortunate. But this guest uh, has said that they want to come back on and, and kind of get deeper, go deeper on, on some of these things. Because this is just a broad kind of intro to biotechnology and agriculture. Um for a wider audience, and then I do kind of want to zero in on a couple of different issues. This is kind of just like the, the icebreaker, the intro. So, uh, yeah, let's get into it. Today, we are featuring my conversation with Dr. Chanal Prakash. He's the professor of plant genetics, biotechnology, and genomics at Tuskegee University in Alabama. This guy is a pioneer. He's spent decades in the field. He's the editor-in-chief of the journal GM Crops. He runs the Ag BioWorld Foundation. We could fill an entire episode with this guy's curriculum vitae. He's fascinating, and I can't wait to share this conversation with you. So, without further ado, here is part two of The Green Revolution. This is my conversation with Dr. Chanaprakash. On the line, I have Dr. Chanal Prakash. Dr. Prakash, thank you. Welcome to the program. Well, thank you. It is an honor to have you. You are a, a global superstar when it comes to agricultural biotechnology. You've worked with governments, universities, organizations uh, around the world. You carry a very heavy and distinguished CV. You've been to the White House and done uh, many amazing things throughout your career. Uh, I was gonna ask you to kind of start at the beginning uh, how you mm-hmm. how you got in or uh, how you got into this, but per my conversation with Kevin Fulta, it led me to ask the more important question: Why? Why? What drove you to uh, become the pioneer in this field that you are? Oh, thank you for asking me that, uh, Gina. Well, you know, I grew up in India. I grew up in sixties when we had a 
a serious drought for two years in India, and there was a big famine, famine that was looming. And at that time, um, Dr. Norman Borla came to India with his uh, dwarf wheat varieties, and that uh, got that caught on very easily with the farmers. And um, because of that green revolution, uh, India, within a short period of time, became reasonably self-sufficient. For instance, the, the wheat production used to be around 10 million tons at the time, and today India produces in excess of 100 million tons of wheat mm -hmm. in practically the same amount of land. And so as a child, I saw how agriculture and specifically the plant breeding and developing of new varieties helped change the world around me. And so I was simply drawn into it in terms of majoring in graduating in agriculture, majoring in genetics, and then learning how to develop new plant varieties. And, uh, and then in the 80s, when I was finishing up my PhD and starting up my career, the, the, bio, the field of biotechnology started. And uh, many of us who are in plant breeding thought of this as an exciting new tool that we need to learn. And so I learned many of the techniques in biotechnology and started using that in my own research and then realized that how, what a, an amazing, powerful tool this would be to help bring more food security to the developing world. Then I saw a lot of our dreams were being hijacked by people who were opposed to this technology, mm -hmm. uh, anti-GMO movement that started in the late 90s. And so a, a small group of us scientists started speaking up against that. Uh, when they say it's a dangerous technology, it is not tested, uh, we started speaking out against that. And so I was simply, you know, gradually drawn into this whole debate at the time. And then I started a website and then I, I was being invited to speak at several meetings. And so here I am and still after 20 years speaking about that. Yeah, it's amazing. And uh, you actually had the privilege of of meeting Norman Borlaug and working with him. What was that like? Oh, that was awesome. I, it was like a dream. You see, he came and gave a lecture um, in India when I was a freshman. And that's how, uh, you know, I learned about the Green Revolution. And I I listened to him and his protege in India, Dr. Uh, Professor Swaminathan. And uh, reading about him, you know, we are, you know, the Nobel laureate, we held all of us, any agricultural scientist would hold Dr. Norman Borlaug in very high esteem. You know, he was like a, he was like a Pope-like figure. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Really revered, heavily, uh, very much loved. But, uh, I had no idea one day I would eventually meet with him and even work with him in many of these activities. And I was very surprised I got a phone call from him. You know, I thought somebody was joking when they said Norman Bola, but I could kind of, you know, I'd heard his speech and everything and I could tell that it's for real. And he said he's calling from Mexico and he's worried about all this GM, anti-GMO things that are going on. And he thought how this technology could could be a successor to what he started. And he told me, look, with one gene, if I'm able to 
bring so much change in the world just by incorporating one gene into wheat with this new technology that you guys got where uh, you can put literally hundreds of genes from anywhere into your crop plants and change it. Just imagine what it could do. So I was really, really spellbound and I was starstruck. And then he, I had a, he invited me to the World Food Prize that he had just started. You see, there was no Nobel Prize for agriculture. And so Norman Borlaug um, got together with General Mills at the time and later one of his uh, uh, friends, um, Ruan, started a World Food Prize in Iowa and he invited me to attend that meeting. And... Um, and so, again, as you can imagine, I was spending time with him and talking to him it was really an incredible experience for me. And I met him several times. And he used to call me um, now and then on the phone from Mexico. And also he used to live with his daughter in Dallas. He used to call me from there. And then one day he said, I want to come to Tuskegee University. I want to, I want to look at the place where George Washington Carver has worked. And then he came here. He spent two days with me. You know, that was, again, an incredible blessing for me, as you can imagine. So many people who knew who knew that I was close to Norman Borlaug used to call me. Look, I want to get Dr. Borlaug come and speak at our university or come speak at this event. Could you please talk to him? And he was already 90 years old at the time. And so, you know, it's not easy for him to go to all these meetings. And then, yet he came here and I thought that was that was really awesome. So. I truly believe that is one of my life's blessings to have known this great man. Yeah, he's an uh, absolute legend for sure. He's a big inspiration for this project. So not all of your interactions have been so <laughs> wonderful as those that you had with Norman Borlaug. I wouldn't be a good nerd unless I asked about your uh, relationship to Vandana Shiva, because that's kind of an epic one. Yeah, that's right. That kind of makes our life interesting that we encounter many of these activists and uh, who are opposed to not only GM crops, but also modern agriculture in general. And they have uh, much uh, uh, distaste for all the things that have happened in the recent agricultural technologies that have helped feed the world. And uh, Vantana Shiva is probably the, mo probably the most prominent and most vociferous and uh, most vocal of all of them. And uh, of course, I had a chance to meet with her, um, you know, I have debated her a couple of times and I've met her a few times. And it's been very interesting to say the, to put it mildly. She, yeah. <laughs> she has a, an iconic uh, presence in many of the um, the kind of certain circles within the uh, within the elite circles in academia here in the in the west and she's a frequent uh, speaker in many of the universities and also in some of many a uh, lot of the conventions related to food and organic agriculture so she's held in very high esteem she's a very charismatic personality who speaks very well mm -hmm. and can put an emotional twist to a lot of things what she's saying but it's just that from my point of view what she says much of it is wrong and it is dangerous 
And it's because of her activism and people like her who really held back the progress of this technology of genetic engineering, what it could do to agriculture, especially in the developing world. A lot of, a lot of policymakers have bought into the crap that people like Vandana Shiva have been saying, which really has not much scientific, uh, scientific basis. And, uh, and it has caused a lot of damage in my opinion. Yeah, I've I've tried to watch some of her stuff and though it's the way that she speaks, I understand why people listen to her, but you're right, she's so misinformed or deliberately deceitful in in the way that she talks about these things. It's 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 hard, but uh yeah, yeah. she's one of the biggest characters out there that has an enormous following and she has a incredibly high you know speech rate that she charges people to go around the world and it's i i find her a, a rather <laughs> sleazy I, figure uh, very hypocritical because she charges almost forty thousand dollars if you have to invite if i have to invite her to come to tuskegee university give a lecture for one hour it's going to cost tuskegee university forty thousand uh, dollars you know about twenty five thirty thousand dollars in a speaking fees and she insists on a first class fare from New Delhi to here, which as you can imagine, um, is about $10,000. And yet yeah. <laughs> uh, for Indian farmer who barely make a couple of dollars a day in their income, because many of them own about half acre, one acre, that's average size of a lot of the smallholder farms in India. And yet they are uh, right now, there are protests, they have gone on a civil, civil disobedience strikes in India, farmers demanding access to some of these new technologies, specifically new advanced rates of GM crops, which mm. would probably help improve their income a few dollars more. And she is vehemently opposed to that and does everything that is possible, including spreading a lot of lies to, to prevent uh, farmers in developing countries access to these technologies. Yeah, the uh, the BT Brinjal case is particularly upsetting. Seeing cause, because it was developed for India and it's been so difficult to get it approved there, it's uh, it's an incredibly frustrating one, especially considering the successes in in Bangladesh. That's right. It's uh, it's very frustrating for a lot of us in the in science because many of us knew what it is and we were you know very much involved in helping uh, people in india understand the importance of it i was involved in going around the country and speaking about it uh, in many times uh, with bt cotton initially and later with bt brinjal and as you know in india it was not approved uh, by the although the, the regulators in india passed it the environment minister in the last minute because of advice from individuals like Vandana Shiva uh, put a moratorium on the BT Brinjal. It's a Brinjal that was specifically developed by Indian scientists to help prevent uh, pesticide application. But in India, Brinjal receives about 40, 50 applications of pesticide uh, because the shoot borer is such a serious pest on it. And yet uh, Bangladesh later picked it up and uh, 
uh, and now there are thousands and thousands of farmers in Bangladesh are growing that, and yet uh, um, in India it has not been approved. And so this is one classic case of the activism of people like Vandana Shiva that has hurt the small farmers and, and the consumers too and the Indian and the environment. Because just imagine, um, because of her consumers in India still continue to eat pesticide laden uh, brinjal. And because of that, millions of tons of pesticide continues to be sprayed in the rural India because this was not approved. Now, what are your thoughts on uh, the, the rejection in, in other industrialized nations throughout Europe? What do you think of the rejection of this technology on, on right. a larger scale? Right. It's, it's, it's interesting because that's, there's a different, there's a certain nuance to that. Um, much of that rejection primarily is in, Euro, in Europe, in European uh, EU countries such as Germany, England, France and uh, Netherlands and Belgium. And uh, the, what is interesting to recognize here is that many of these countries are not opposed to biotechnology. They embrace biotechnology in many ways. These countries are scientifically very advanced. They pursue very high, sophisticated biotechnology research in those countries. Mm -hmm. And they use biotechnology in their food. If you go to Europe, probably 80% of the cheese that you buy in Europe is made with enzymes that have been developed through biotechnology. These enzymes have been produced in yeast through genetic engineering. Mm -hmm. Practically all the diabetes uh, treatment insulin is now produced using recombinant DNA technology. But the Europeans are also large consumers of biotech products because they are one of the largest importers of GM soybean from, from Europe, from sorry, from the United States, Argentina, and Brazil. It's just that they have kind of stood in the way of their farmers using GMOs for a variety of political reasons. And uh, they are not really scientific reasons. And uh, so unfortunately, you know, Europe uh, can, can, can afford to wait for this technology for a little longer because right now they are not really starving. There's a, there's a good food production going on in Europe, even without this technology. By the way, Europe, Europe has one of the highest uh, users of pesticide, by the way, not many people recognize that. Mm. But they're still, still continuing to avoid biotechnology, which is not a big factor right now when it comes to food security in Europe. But unfortunately, many countries in Africa and Asia still continue to look up to their European colonial masters for the setting up their ag policies and not including GMO or not favoring GM crops is just one of them. It's just sad because countries in Africa and Asia, especially South Asia, need this technology to help improve the crops so that they could be more productive, um, especially now under this big turmoil in climate that we are seeing mm -hmm. and the impending doom of climate change that we keep hearing. Biotechnology is one of the most potent tools that we have to help develop resilient crops, crops that can cope with drought, flooding, and heat, and yet produce quality food. And, uh, and, and because of European reluctance to, to allow GM crops for their farmers, the negative 
the side effect of that is that it is also being deprived the farmers in South Asia and in Sub-Saharan Africa, many of them have been deprived of this technology. Yeah, one of the um, one of the big things that Vanana Shiva brings up a lot as her hooks that she gets into people is the idea of owning life. So, what are what are your thoughts? Are what are they on uh, the intellectual property rights of of biotech seeds? How do you think about that? That's a lot of rubbish. She talks about, you know, nobody, nobody wants life. Uh, we don't want life just because there's been a patent on a gene. Uh, because of allowing of the patents has has helped spawn half a trillion dollar industry called biotechnology industry with a lot of very positive outcome to the humanity. Uh, you would not have had this insulin. Um, that now has been cloned with hundreds of millions of people using it around the world, if not for biotechnology, and that was made possible because the patents were that allowed where scientists could come up with technology to identify these genes and come up with a way to clone and express these proteins and, and, and then market them. Mm-hmm. And so she's simply using this emotional language and putting fear of the people and uh, scaring them about what what scientific enterprise is about and what free economy is all about and and people who do not understand that simply buy into the claptrap she talks about but on the other hand by letting science continue when you know when we need to look at the vast benefits that it can bring of course there are some issues related to intellectual property certain such as the concentration of the scientific power in the hands of very few people, and then the misuse of this technology. And so, you know, when you look at even even like internet technologies, for instance, you see there is some some amount of abuse that goes on, like the Facebook or Google or whatever. And the answer to those is you how you regulate them, how you how you deal with those transgressions and not banning a technology. And what has happened, unfortunately, with GM technology is this many of these countries, uh, including Europe and uh, and Africa and Asia, instead of trying to deal with some of the nuances of this technology and deal with regulation in a more science-based manner, they have simply put a moratorium on that, depriving their societies the, the benefits of this technology while not recognizing that this is a technology like any others that needs to be addressed through appropriate means of regulation and you just don't stop it. Yeah, absolutely. And that's why I wanted to take uh, this opportunity to share your message, to get this out there in the world so that people start talking about this because it is very important. And the loudest people out there aren't being honest. So we need more honest voices. And thank you again for adding yours to the conversation on our humble platform here. Uh, let's talk about your work. What's what's the favorite thing you've ever done? Uh, in terms of my research mm-hmm. or in terms of my public uh, outreach? Uh, I'd say in, in your research, what's uh, the most in my, profound? Right. Yeah. I work at a small 
historically black university, Tuskegee University, where much of my responsibility earlier used to be teaching. And now I'm an administrator, I'm a dean for the College of Arts and Science. So unfortunately, doesn't, that doesn't leave much time for my research anymore. Mm. But I have been conducting research for the last almost 35 years in the area of biotechnology. And there were a couple of things I'm very proud of is uh, although we were at a very small university and with a very small group of people with very meager funding, yet uh, myself and this, my group were the first to develop GM crops in peanuts and in sweet potato. These are the two crops the great scientist George Washington Carver had worked on in my university in the same building wow. where I had set up my lab. And so it was a big honor for me to kind of continue that research and bring an element of new genetic technologies into it. And so uh, we were uh, among the very first to develop transgenic crops in these two very important crops, both peanut and sweet potato are important developing country crops. Sweet potato is eaten across Africa, a very important source of uh, calories and vitamin A now uh, in, in Africa. And so we helped set the stage for introducing technology into it. And, uh, and also we did some very early work on genomics of both the crops, trying to introduce DNA, very, identify DNA variation in that. And ours was the very first lab to, to detect DNA variation and DNA fingerprints in peanut. And uh, there's one um, in beyond, uh, beyond that, what I'm proud of is is, is speaking about this technology around the world. I've been very fortunate to go to many, many different places across the world, being invited to speak and share my knowledge of how these technology, these crops are developed, how these are tested, and why I believe this is a safe technology, why I believe these are uh, safe, GM crops are safe, and why embracing that would be in the interests of many of these countries. So that is something I'm very proud of. Yes, and I am proud of it too. You, you're a you're a legend in the agriculture agriculture circles that I I travel in. So, I'm, again, I feel very fortunate to have you with us today. Um, when you look to the horizon, what what do you see for the future of biotechnology, next generation stuff? Right. You see, we won't be using the term GMOs anymore because you know this is like a model T of our technology. Uh, there are so many exciting new, newer tools that are happening. And one, uh, one of that is called genetic gene editing. Mm-hmm. It also goes by other terms such as genome engineering. And one specific t- technology in that is called CRISPR. Essentially what this does is to help edit the the, the language of life, the DNA, very precisely and change small nucleotide changes. It's like making, you know, in the earlier we used to call mutation breeding. And that's what it is, but given a much more refined version of it. And it is very exciting because it doesn't involve uh, transfer of any foreign genes into the crops. And so we could make changes from within. And many countries, including United States, are recognizing this. Uh, essentially as an extension of conventional breeding and they're not <coughs> putting huge regulatory burdens on these crops 
in that way, many smaller players like our universities, like ours, would be able to bring about newer crops and bring it into the commercial arena without much expense involved. Uh, in fact, one of my students just graduated today with her PhD, uh, Crystal Lee, and she her research was to see what, uh, what it takes to develop hypoallergenic peanuts oh, using nice. this generating technology. And she was able to you know, make, you know, show proof of concept in the laboratory that we could inactivate many of these allergen genes in peanut using this CRISPR technology. And uh, these, these are the kind of uh, uh, result that I find it very exciting. I do foresee in the future that this technology would help not just improve productivity of crop plants, which it would do, because you know we already have uh, seven billion people, and in a few years it's going to be nine or ten billion people in the world, and we don't have any much more agricultural land to expand, and so we need to be thinking as to how we can improve, continue to produce our food and produce more food for this in, in increasing mouths to feed, but do it so without using too much fertilizer, without using too much pesticide, and with the realities of the global climate change, with, uh, with drought, with flooding, with uh, heat like what we see today. And all of these are very detrimental to crops and increased epidemics of pests and diseases, increased uh, uh, salt in our soils, and all of those are real hazards facing agriculture. They were always faced farming, and that's going to increase in intensity as the days goes by. And I believe uh, genetic technologies, including gene editing, but wide variations of that, um, and the knowledge that we that that every day that is we are that we are learning from studies of crop plants and other plants the genomics, the proteomics, the metabolomics, and, uh, and, and their applications uh, tells me that we have an exciting future ahead where we would be able to apply science and to improve our agricultural productivity in an unprecedented manner. Yeah, it's, it's very, very exciting stuff. What, what do you think is the biggest misconception out there about this technology? Right. The biggest misconception about genetically modified crops, I think, is that that it is unnatural in a way that it doesn't exist uh, if we didn't do it in the lab and that it is not tested and that it is unsafe. Mm -hmm. And all the three are false simply because we know now that genetic engineering happens in nature. Just to give an example, uh, we know now that all the sweet potatoes that are there out in the world today have been genetically transformed using the same agrobacterium that we use in our lab. That nature did that millions of years ago because it has that signature of that agrobacterium. Uh, every one of the sweet potatoes that has been tested. So all, almost all of our crop plants, in a way, have that horizontal transfer of genes from other organisms. That has happened very slowly over millions of years, but nevertheless, it has happened. So, there, it's a, a good amount of uh, genetic engineering uh, goes on in the nature. So, what we do in the lab 
might sound unnatural, but it's really not unnatural. And secondly, compared to traditional crops, the gene modified crops go through a lot of testing. Uh, on an average, we spend about 10, you know, 10 years just testing the safety of these. And about we spend about on an average $120 million for trade. And so a tremendous amount of testing goes on before these crops are commercialized. And and that that adds to the element of our confidence why they are safe. And so the, the fact that they are not safe, the people, some of the opponents who keep telling that they are not safe is simply not true because we have been growing these crops for the last 23 or 24 years on cumulatively on four or five billion acres and you know consume trillions of meals. And if you walk into a, a supermarket, you probably have about 10 or 15,000 products uh, in that supermarket, which have been derived from biotech crops like corn, soybean, canola, and sugar beets that we grow here in this country. And yet we have not had a single instance of harm to anybody to any human being, any livestock, and there's nothing, no, no major surprise in their environmental impacts too. Much of that has really been positive. Positive such as uh, farmers don't till the land anymore in soybean. It's contributed to major ecolog uh, ecological benefits, and we don't spray as much pesticide because of the Bt crops, and uh, we use less machinery on the farms leading to reduced carbon emission. So all of these are very tangible environmental benefits. There's also tangible uh, food safety benefits because the Bt corn that we grow is about 30-fold less uh, 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 toxin, mycotoxin that it has, mm -hmm. and it makes them much healthier produce compared to the regular corn. So these are all the positive benefits derived from the technology and and there's really not no downside to it as far as I can see. Yeah. And to a degree, there's no amount of testing that will satisfy who's some somebody who's what let's yeah. call it skeptical. It's not really skepticism because real skepticism, you want to learn more and many of these people don't seem to want to learn more. Uh, it's it's deeply rooted in in kind of ideological the way that I see it. There's no amount that's that's going to convince them. When you look at um, the Aqua Advantage salmon that was recently approved, that was in testing for 20 years, and it, there are still people saying, "Oh, not enough testing, not enough testing." So that's incredibly frustrating. Well, nothing nothing else was tested. We don't we don't test our our mutagenic crops. We don't test our you know we didn't test any of the crops that came from artificial selection over the last 10,000 years so it's and those are just exactly. random jumbling of of dna so it doesn't the skepticism over the precision stuff has never really made sense to me on the note of horizontal gene transfer i just had to point out the ultimate irony that the uh, famed non-gmo project their mascot the monarch butterfly is itself a result of horizontal gene transfer from, uh, I, I believe, parasitic wasps or something. That's right. So it does happen in nature all the time. Exactly. Yes, you're right. I agree. 
so you've been to the White House a few times, it sounds like. Can you tell us about those experiences? Well, I've really been once, uh, one time when I was asked by the U.S. Uh, uh, Trade, Sec- US Trade Secretary, uh, who went on to become um, chairman of the World Bank, Bob Zelak, and uh, Ann Veneman, who was a USDA secretary at the time. In 2003, they, the United States was involved in filing a, a lawsuit against European Union. And uh, so they asked a bunch of us to help them uh, craft the language and provide some technical assistance on the, on the issues related to the lawsuit. So I was, I was involved in that specifically, in a, it was a White House initiative. But I was also, I have served, uh, been very honored to serve on the USDA Advisory Committee uh, around that time for about three or four years uh, for USDA. And that was again my involvement uh, with the administration at that time. And a couple other times that I got closer to the administration was actually with the Congress uh, when they invited myself and Vandana Shiva and a few others to speak at a congressional forum to members of Congress and their staff about biotechnology. And also at one time when I was involved in a campaign to get a congressional gold medal to Dr. Norman Borlaug in 2008 uh, i think at that time i was invited to the u.s capitol by nancy pelosi uh, when they gave the gold medal to dr borlaug president bush was the one who gave the medal to him but i was in a front seat at that time and it was a again a a, a very pivotal iconic moment in my career to be sitting there yeah it sounds pretty surreal just thinking about it, uh, what are what are your thoughts on the current administration as it relates to agriculture and maybe trade tariffs? How, how do you see these issues? I I keep a you know kind of peripheral vision on that. It's not my main area of expertise. Mm. Uh, I do um, you know I I don't. You know, I don't agree with the tariffs uh, overall because I think that it distorts the trade and that goes both ways. And I recognize a lot of countries uh, have been putting tariffs to American products. And so uh, this is kind of a, a trade war. But what is unfortunate about it is how our farmers in the United States have been hurt because of that. Yeah. Uh, because of the trade that, you know, the retaliation by China, for instance, because in the U.S. put a tariff on Chinese products. China immediately put a tariff on an agricultural export to their country, and the number one was that soybeans. And so that hurt our farmers here, and I'm always, uh, you know, that makes me very uncomfortable. Um, but beyond that, I don't, I don't have, um, you know, any comments on agricultural policies of the, the, the current administration, as long as they support innovation and technology and so far, they seem to be doing that. Mm-hmm. I'm fine with it. Yeah, I think, I think they actually loosened up some regulations around uh, biotech crops. I'm not 100% right. sure on the details there, but it's not all bad. 
<laughs> anyway, that's I... right. <laughs> the, uh, recent uh, pronouncements on gene editing, for instance, have been really good, and uh, and also the recent announcement they're going to take a serious look at the existing uh, regulation on GMOs and see how they could streamline it even further is a very welcome suggestion because U.S. already is very, has a more enlightened regulatory, poli regulatory policy than any other country and make it even more science-based and fact reason-based is, is really a welcome move. Yeah, I would love to see them start powering through and releasing, you know, as many as, as possible because they get, they get caught up in in red tape for years and there's a lot of really right. really good stuff that could be happening and we need to be making we need to be leading the world in advancing this and sharing it with the developing world that should you know be Absolutely. our role of the 21st century we really need to be leaders on this right so exactly and golden rice is a good example it's been in in development forever much of it is in you know the so-called regulatory testing for nearly 25 years now and it's uh, golden rice as you know has been developed simply by transferring a couple of genes from maize into it and it produces for the first time uh, beta carotene those uh, vitamin pre-vitamins that our body can convert into vitamin a and it could be a, at least a partial answer to nearly half a million children who go blind every year because of lack of vitamin A in their diet. And golden rice can prove some, you know, provide some answer to that. And yet it has not even been released for commercial cultivation, despite, despite the fact that it's been in, you know, in testing for the last many, many years. Yeah, it's frustrating. I think the, the biggest thing that we can do is, is speak up about it and try to change public perspective perception around these issues and raise awareness, let people know, tell these stories about BT Brinjal, about golden rice, about all these wonderful success stories around the world and how, how it really can radically help relieve a lot of suffering across the world. It's one of the most important tools in our toolbox, I think. Certainly. I agree. Listen, I know you are a very busy guy and, and you've been generous with your time. Uh, took a little bit to get down and sit down with you here. And then we had a couple little uh, technical difficulties there. But I think I think we made it through okay. <laughs> Is uh, If people want to learn more about your work, where would, where would you direct people online? Well, you know, I used to maintain a website, which I don't update anymore. It's still there. It has a lot of, you know, previous information. It's agbioworld.org, A-G-B-I-O-W-O-R-L-D.org. But the best place to meet with me is really on the social media. I'm quite active on Twitter every day, send out news on what's happening in the area of crop biotechnology, some of the new exciting scientific um, outcomes, for instance, and again, at AgBioWorld, A-G-B-I-O-W-O-R-L-D, either on the Facebook or on Twitter is the best way to keep in touch with what's 
what I'm doing and what's going on in this in this area. Awesome. Well, I will make sure to put links to that in the show notes so that people can find it easy. And uh, yeah, it, was there anything else that you wanted to uh, mention? Anything going on in the world that you think is interesting? No, not really. I think we have covered quite a lot of ground. I just yeah. uh, you know, want to request your audience to be an open mind. Don't just buy into conspiracy theories about any of these technologies like this or vaccines and climate change. Many of the things that we see just when you and when you think some things are controversial, where you try to get information from credible sources, from scientists and, uh, and trust the research from published, peer-reviewed uh, research, rather than opinion of uh, you know people in the fringe, for instance, and so that is going to help keep 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 us the public opinion moving in moving forward in a scientific manner, and to embrace uh, embrace our future in a more sensible manner. Yeah. Well, that is a wonderful place to leave it. Dr. Chanal Prakash, thank you very much for uh, coming on the show. It was awesome. Thank you, Jenner. I enjoy talking to you. Edit. <laughs> so it was a couple days after this episode came out, and uh, it absolutely drove me crazy. So... I'm adding this after the fact. Um, I got his title wrong. That's his old title. Um, he's currently the dean of the College of Arts and Sciences, which is a much bigger deal. Uh, and so many apologies to Dr. Prakash for getting that uh, wrong. That is my bad. I'm leaving it in there as a uh, as a reminder that we are all human and we all do dumb, silly stuff sometimes. But, uh, yeah, I thought that was important to add in uh, after the fact, several days after the interview. I'm going, oh, shit, man, I really got to fix that. That's not right. Uh, so, yes. Again, apologies to Dr. Prakash. Uh, he's the dean, not just a professor. He's, uh, he's a big deal. And that was a great conversation. I, I really can't wait to get him back on. Anyway, uh, with that... <laughs> Here's the rest of the show that was there before I added this. Hopefully we'll get him back on in the future um, to kind of dig deeper on a lot of these issues. This was just kind of like a surface skim over the top, broad view, broad strokes. Um, and that'll give us the opportunity down the line to, to dig really deep into some of these issues and uh, hopefully Professor Fulton will be coming back on too to uh, talk biotech and such. Uh, yeah, this uh, brings me to a point where I, I kind of got to get real with you guys for a minute. Um, this has been a profoundly moving experience for me. It feels kind of surreal. This is episode 10 of the show, uh, our first milestone, I suppose. And I'm just blown away. I'm blown away that uh, people want to listen and that, that people want to send in stuff and that people want to come on my show. I mean, uh, we just had two all-star guests. And for a brand new 
podcast, just kind of trying to find our sea legs. This is uh, this was extremely fortunate, uh, and I feel very awesome about the whole thing. It's kind of difficult to put into words. Um, I guess just uh, thank you. <laughs> thank you, listeners. Thank you, supporters. Thank you, Professor Fulta and Dr. Prakash for coming on this Green Revolution series with me. Thank you to John D. Boswell for being one of the coolest creators on the planet that I know of, uh, who will not only take an email like this, but uh, be willing to work with us and, and collaborate and share. Because, uh, I mean, that's what it's all about, right? It's, uh, let's get this stuff out there. So, yeah. Uh, if you enjoyed this project, uh, share it. Share it with your uh, with your agriculture friends, with your non-agriculture friends, with your anti-GMO friends. Why the hell not? <laughs> if you have any of those. Uh, I used to have some. Not anymore. I don't know what happened with that. <laughs> anyway, uh, thanks again, guys, to everybody who is making this possible. And uh, we'll see where we'll see where this adventure takes us. Uh, I think we're off to a great start, though. I'm excited about it. We'll talk to you guys next time. Quick shout out to the Mindwave team. Our YouTube manager is Paul Beck. Our Twitter manager is Michael Latona. Our volunteer web host is Rob J. Wilson. Our very first Patreon patron is Travis Meyer. And thanks to my wonderful co-host, Josh, who is unfortunately not able to be here for this series, but he absolutely loved it, and we are going to do a breakdown with him next time he's over here. Our website is mindwave.media. You can find all the relevant contact information and previous episodes there. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at Mindwave Podcast. And join our Facebook group. Uh, search the groups for Mindwave. You should recognize our logo in there. And there you'll get a bunch of behind-the-scenes stuff. Uh, random throughout the day. You might even get some heads up on uh, special guests coming up and uh, secret stuff. So join us and uh, let's continue the conversation. Thanks for listening, guys. We'll talk to you next time.